Welcome to Reading Between the Reels. I'm Craig Dickinson. And I'm Matt Leader. Today on the show, we are taking a look at Return of the Jedi. So Return of the Jedi, uh, released in 1983, three years after Empire Strikes Back. Uh, but it's set only six months after Empire, which I was a little bit surprised. I saw this movie when I was a little kid and just assumed it was three years later. But uh, it's only been six months, so it picks up things pretty quickly uh, after after Empire and, and the cliffhanger from that film. And uh, let's talk about cinematography. Let's just go ahead and jump in there. Uh, Matt, did you have anything for cinematography that you'd like to, to, to point out? You know, as I was looking at the cinematography and the camera work, it felt like a real continuation of Empire. Uh, I, I didn't feel like the like the camera movements or the shot compositions were really that different. Um, they are different directors, but I felt like the style was is was pretty down the middle. Uh, nothing really unusual uh, as far as as camera work or composition. And if you watch Empire and then Return of the Jedi, it's going to feel like the same director and in the same editor, and it's going to feel like a very very much a continu- continuation of of the same style. And you don't get that back-to-back in every Star Wars film. Um, I think there's a, a very different style between, like, J.J. and Ryan in the sequel trilogy. But this, and I, when I was younger, I didn't even know they were different directors. I, I, I thought they were all made by Lucas. And it wasn't until I watched some of the documentaries and stuff made about the movies later on that I realized that they were different people. Uh, but it felt kind of very much like a sibling to um, the cinematography style of Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and, you know, we mentioned uh, in the last, at the beginning of the last episode, how uh, we kind of had an echo of the beginning of A New Hope with the the Star Destroyer, the Super Star Destroyer in this case, uh, eclipsing the, the, uh, the smaller Star Destroyers. And in this one, it's very much like a literal homage to the first, to the original film where you have this the super star destroyer or the star destroyer that Vader's on coming from the, like exactly the same angle. Uh it's cool to kind of rip rhymes that way. Uh I love that shot all uh that scene also because it sets up, you know, the security it's foreshadowing for later on um when the when our heroes are trying to get to Endor. They're even in a similar spacecraft as well. Uh some things that I did notice this time and I it, it, again it's it's becoming uh, very interesting to try and find new things that we haven't talked about with Star Wars because a lot of it is 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 rhyming and, and things that we've seen that kind of fits a pattern. Uh, but some things I noticed this time that I really appreciated was uh, when Luke appears, that he's in silhouette. You just see he's, he's backlit from outside of Jabba's palace, and I just really appreciate the fact that there's a, I mean there's a great deleted scene where he's making the green lightsaber. I'm glad that's not in the film. Because I think this works so well as an introduction for him, where we don't quite know where he stands. And building on that, one thing that I noticed this time was that when he walks in and he's in front of Jabba, when Bib Fortuna wakes him up, uh, Luke is the only one in light. I thought that was fascinating, that the light is coming down only on him. Uh, And then from there... He begins to threaten Jabba and steps into the shadows, which I thought was kind of a cool um, metaphor, right? That he, because he does do some questionable things, and I know we'll talk about that a little bit. 
uh, in Jabba's palace. And so I thought that was an interesting contrast between uh, being in the shadows and being in the light. And there was a lot of that in this one that, you know, um, for lack of a better term, it's kind of Spielbergian or, you know, Spielberg plays with shadows and light a lot uh, in his films and his, his cinematographers do. And so I thought there was a little bit of influence of that, I thought, maybe a little bit like we see in, in Raiders, uh, which we'll get to at some point. But uh, that's what I had for uh, composition. Yeah, and I do think that's a that's a great pickup because um, that is something I wanted to talk about is Luke definitely has a darker, there's definitely a darker tone around Luke is what I would say. He does kind of, like you said, questionable things in Jabba's Palace where I feel like it's not dark side. He hasn't like, you know, he's not acting like Darth Vader, but there's an edge and a danger to him that you don't get a sense of in the first two films. And I do think that's a very interesting progression from a character perspective. Uh, and that's just a really good pickup with him and the, the play of light and shadow to reflect the character work. Yeah. And, you know, to contrast that, when you look at camera work, that one of my favorite shots uh, in the film is actually when he's, uh, he's got like one foot on the, on the plank over, over the Sarlacc and the cameras that are like a really low angle looking up at him, even though he's, far below, um, you know, the sail barge. So it's kind of inverted from where you would think it would be. So it's very much like he's totally in charge and like he's, he's given power, even though it looks like he's being sentenced to his doom. So I thought that was a, was a great, great, interesting shot. Uh, I also have always appreciated the, the mix of shots, uh, with the Rancor, which, you know, if you've seen the, in the, uh, behind the scenes stuff that it's a puppet, right? Like a, not like not even a big puppet really. Uh, and you know, it, it holds up, I think, you know, they've cleaned up, um, some of the, of the green screen stuff, but because it, it edits so quickly back and forth, you know, and then mixed with like the giant claw and all those things that like it feels and the scale looks the way it's shot looks like it's an actual giant monster, you know, threatening Luke Skywalker. You know, talking about those props, I think it's really interesting because something that came up when I was watching it is there are some moments that feel like special effects wise that feel really good and others that don't. <laughs> so sure. when they're on Endor and the ATSC is walking and there's one moment where it like trips over some logs and you can see that like the feet of the ATSC are like floating on top of the logs. Like you can tell they're not really there. There's nothing on them. And like little moments like that, they do kind of break the immersion a little bit. But I completely agree with Java, where it feels very grounded. And it kind of made me wonder a little bit, not to get too deep into it, but we we also watched Jaws for an upcoming episode, uh, which is also a great classic film uh, with some amazing special effects. And uh it made me wonder, like, what, what, what is it about like '80s movies and '90s movies, and and special effects that seem to work so well, whereas sometimes it just doesn't seem to work as well in more modern films. And it got me thinking because, you know, Spielberg directed Jaws, who's and Spielberg is great friends with Lucas, and I'm sure the two shared many, many ideas and, and tips, and you know, bounced ideas off of each other. And so it's kind of within this big directing family tree. And then I watched um, at least a part of Ready Player One, which is heavy on the CGI. 
And even though the story was okay, the CGI just felt a little weightless. It felt less real. And I think that there's something to a physical prop, a physical puppet, like you said, that just, I don't know, it feels better in the film. And that's where, you know, even though the ATSC looks a little silly when it's like floating on top of the logs, I'm kind of willing to roll with it. But for some reason, the CGI in a lot of films, it, it does seem to pull me out more often than a physical prop does. I don't know. What, what, what do you think? Yeah, no, no, I agree. I think a lot of that comes from limitations, right? And having to figure out how to work around limitations when you can't render something that looks lifelike, you know, at, at that scale that you have to figure out ways, like we mentioned with the Rancor, where you can't show it all at once right next to our main character. You've got to show little bits here and there, and you've got to use editing uh, and camera angles, which I think is why we want to, you know, focus on on composition, right? That, like, these are important things that were you being used to convey these uh, these these scenes to make you feel danger, uh, to make you uh, read the emotions. You know, one of the things I had for this one too was the intercutting between Palpatine uh, and Vader while Palpatine is is electrocuting Luke, and there's no dialogue, but it just cuts back and forth, uh, and you're you read into which is amazing because you can't even see his face. You read what's going on. That clearly, if it's a lingering. Here, this shot is making you think, well, what's he, what's he thinking, right? And it's literally just, I'm alternating camera shots. Yeah. Um, and then one other thing I wanted to point out with this one, because I saw somebody else had, had this has kind of been uh, a meme that's been trending a little bit too, uh, is that when, uh, when Vader says to Luke that Obi-Wan has taught you well in their duel, it's when Luke is up on the catwalk and has the high ground, which I thought was interesting. Um, I don't know if that, how intentional that is, uh, but it's interesting that, he, again, he's shot Lucas, again, above, that he does have the literal and metaphorical high ground in this sense because he is choosing nonviolence in this yeah. duel. Well, I think that that speaks to the power of montage. And, you know, these, when you put two images next to each other and you cut between them, people will create meaning between. They will create connection. And that's one of the ways that makes cinema and cinematic language powerful. So. Right. So sound, um, this one, I actually did have um, some sound effects that, I, that I've always enjoyed that kind of stood out to me. Um, the carbon freezing is one thing I, I can hear that right now. I remember that was a thing that was really cool when I was a little kid. Uh, but my main, main one that I like, at, like is, well, actually there's two, uh, is the speeder bike, the Doppler effect. I was all, I mean, Lucas is notoriously a, a fan of speed. And so, you know, there's something fast and virtually all the Star Wars movies. Uh, and that's the one that shows up mainly in this one. And I just love um, the scene where C-3PO was telling the story, catching us all up and catching the Ewoks up. Um, something interesting with that, I remember when that aired on network television, that was one of the scenes that was cut for time. And so I didn't see it for several years until I bought the VHS copy and was like, well, what is this? And I had, you know, it had been like a decade since I'd seen it. So that's a scene that always stands out to me now. I'm like, oh yeah, this is that scene where he makes all the sound effects and you know, he's evolved um, from, you know, not, not very good at telling stories when we first meet him to now he's a master storyteller. Yeah, I, I think uh, 3PO's scene, to me, speaks to the brilliance of the sound design because so many of those sounds, as we've kind of said before, they are so evocative of whatever item, you know, it is. When you hear a lightsaber turn on, you know immediately what it is. 
And I think that the creators of the movie realize that. And I think it's just kind of a cool nod to the to Ben Burton, the, the sound design team, that they use this as a storytelling technique where they use basically, because I, if I'm remembering right, he just, he's, uh, C-3PO isn't even speaking English. He's speaking the, the Ewok language. But we have a sense of what's going on and what he's talking about based on the sound effects that he's giving. Yeah, that's an excellent point. That like that, yeah, you're you're just piecing it together from the sound effects. You do not even need the dialogue. And you know, people have said multiple times that you know Star Wars works as a, as a silent film, uh, and this is just another instance where where yeah, it works that way. You just need the sound effects, or you just need the music, and and that's enough. You know, there's but you get all these other layers as well, which is cool. Uh, speaking of music, a um, couple things I wanted to point out was that we have diegetic music again. And it's horrible uh, in Jabba's palace. Yeah, and uh, you know it's it's mercifully cut short, but it always seems longer than it should be. And uh, I wanted to say at this point that I miss Loptineck. I love Loptineck, but Jedi Rocks is horrible. And uh, as our friend Brian Young has said, it doesn't really matter. It's all you know. The point is that uh, Jabba has horrible taste in music, regardless. For me, I, I agree. But for me, it just kind of ruins the tone. And it just, it's just so goofy at a time when it, it doesn't, it feels incongruous with what's going on in Jabba's palace. And it just, it's one of those moments again, where the uh, special edition, when Lucas came back and kind of fiddled with the movie, you know, it may be what his original vision was, but I think it really messes with the timing and the tone of the film where I think an empire I feel like the tweaking that was done really didn't mess with the tone or or the pace of the film as much as it does in the first and in the third of the trilogy. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, I would say that there is some great new music that's in this uh, that's in this film, uh, along with some of the repeated themes from from the earlier films. Uh, for instance, we hear the the Hanalea theme as Leia is revealed when, which is a great surprise. The first time you see that when, you know, she's, she's Boosh, the bounty hunter. Uh, so that's, you know, masterful leitmotif use usage by, by Williams. I really enjoy, uh, the Luke and Leia theme that we get, uh, you know, it's, it's super rare. I think it's part of the reason I like it so much is that you don't hear it very often. You know, we hear it, um, where Luke reveals that Leia is his sister and that Vader is their father. We hear it briefly there. And we hear it also, and I don't think, I've noticed that one, but I don't think I noticed that the, the second time it shows up is where Leia tells Han that Luke's her brother. It's played again. It's not a not as um, not as long. It's a, it's a shorter quotation. Uh, and then we, you know, the only other time that we hear that is in Last Jedi when they're reunited on Crate. And so that was a great callback for me to be able to hear that. And I just love that, that song. Some other things um, that I liked motif wise is that the Ewok themes, I mean, they have a couple of themes which are fun uh, and let you know immediately that they're not ultimately a threat to our heroes. It's masterful work again on that, doing the heavy lifting on that. Um, the Emperor's theme is just creepy and just completely fits his character. And uh, my favorite, I think my favorite uh, leitmotif in this one usage though is uh, when we hear the Imperial March as Vader dies, 
and it's played in that kind of s- just slow, melancholy, light piano. Uh, and it takes on a totally different tone uh, than we're used to hearing from that. And I'll just say that I, I miss Yubnub. That's the other thing that I, I miss Yubnub. I do too. Uh, and uh, I do, I do, I like the last sequence, uh, but Yubnub's just stuck in my brain because that was what I first heard. And I, I didn't like the last sequen- sequence as much. And it's interesting for me because I think I mentioned on the last episode that I had the theatrical cuts on DVD. And that's almost entirely what I watched, you know, last, however many times I've watched these movies were always a theatrical cut. So I had Yubnub. And uh, this is the first time I remember seeing uh, the new scenes from like Naboo, the celebration on Naboo on Coruscant. And I actually didn't like it as much. Not, not the, uh, the music or the, or, you know, the tone or anything, but it just felt like the, the original ending with the party on Endor felt a little more real. Like they had won a victory, but not necessarily the war. And it feels more like a continuation of the Star Wars saga in the sense that, you know, like the New Republic still has a lot of work to do. They're, they're not finished, you know? And uh, there's essentially a power vacuum at Coruscant. And I would imagine that there would be people who are using that to their own advantage. So yeah, I, I just, I, I prefer the original Yubnub. Uh, to me, that felt like this joyous victory in battle uh, without kind of saying like the war is over. And, you know, at that time, they probably weren't sure they were going to ever make more movies. So it made sense to, you know, the whole galaxy is celebrating. Yeah. And that's one thing I want to talk about a little bit, um, probably closer to the end. But just a you know, sneak preview of that is, is how much I enjoy this film I mean, as the culmination of the Star Wars saga, that it wraps things up so beautifully that I almost wish they had not continued. It's and a that's good ending. Com- yeah, it's a great ending. Uh, and, you know, if you talk about, uh, as Yubnub kind of signifies, hey, the work's not over, that almost fits better if we're going to have seven, eight, and nine versus if we're done, which it does, it feels like, hey, we're done because yeah. here's the, you know, the war's over, we're celebrating everywhere. So let's go ahead and talk about performance. So the first thing that pops into my mind, and it's also tied a little bit to design a little bit uh, with with costume, is Luke. And we we mentioned already how Luke has this darker feeling to him. And one of my all-time favorite moments in, in any Star Wars film is when Luke is in the throne room and he's in his all-black costume. And his costume opens up the front like lapel part of it kind of falls open and you see white on the inside and star Wars is such a classic fairy tale, like fantasy, like in some ways it reminds me of Lord of the Rings where there is like true evil and true good. And it reveals that even though Luke is a little bit darker in this film, he's still light. He's still good on the inside. And it's just such a cool reflection of the inner character based on the costume. Yeah, I've always I've always enjoyed that that outfit. And and the black glove is one thing I wanted to point out, you know, that they have it's it's a very natural progression. You know, he gets injured in there, uh, in the scene in the, the fight on, on the sail barge at, at Jabba's palace or Jabba's on Jabba's sail barge outside of the, the Sarlacc pit, and then he has to put the glove on when and like it's very natural, right? He puts the glove on when he's in the X Wing and then he has that that shot of the glove 
when Palpatine's taunting him about taking Vader's place. And I remember as a kid, I was like, did his hand just turn black? Like I hadn't, <laughs> hadn't paid attention close enough. But like, it's it's wonderful filmmaking that they have been seeding that that part the entire time, that he has this mechanical hand that's now shrouded in a black glove, much like his father. And I think that's genius along with the, the white panel uh, on his outfit and the fact that he's wearing black as opposed to gray in the previous film and white earlier and you have this this progression but yeah he's he still has you know underneath he's still our hero one and the the mechanical arm plays off the fact you know in that kind of culminating moment between vader and luke when luke lashes out in anger and you kind of see the vader side of him right you have the saying the apple doesn't fall fall far from the tree there is a lot of vader and luke there is a very real anger in him and he lashes out. And I think that's my favorite moment of the movie. And one of my favorite moments in any Star Wars film is when Luke lashes out and you see the anger of him throwing himself at Vader over and over again and ultimately cutting Vader's hand off, which is, you know, a rhyme to Empire. But then he looks down at his mechanical hand and he realizes that we are the same. Mm hmm. I could be Vader, yep. which is also another callback to the cave in Empire. And it's such a beautiful character moment because it's that moment when Luke realizes this is the last time he can make a choice, right? He's at the crossroad of his, of his kind of character. And if he goes down the one path toward the dark side, he will turn into the next Vader. And instead, he chooses a nonviolent path. And I think it's immediately after that he tosses his lightsaber. And it's such a beautiful moment of, of thematic and character work where you see the final culmination of, of Luke as a hero isn't in violence, but in nonviolence. And I think that's just, that's my favorite part of this movie. And I think that's what makes the film. I think that is such a brilliant, it's one of the things I love about movies and storytelling in general is when you have kind of unconventional or unexpected solutions or endings. And that is not what I expected. And it's not what you would expect, I think, from most kind of adventure film heroes is choosing the nonviolent path. And that's what Luke does. Yeah, Luke's, uh, I should say, Mark Hamill's performance as Luke in, in this scene is is so nuanced. You see him you know, approach that level and then back down and then approach that level and back down so many times uh, without having to explain, no, I'm not going to do this, right? It's it's all body language. You can see him like calming himself you know, on his face uh, it, without having to be, you know, over the top. It's, it's, it's realistic and... Uh, yeah, that's that's my favorite moment too. When he when he tosses away the lightsaber, that to me is the most powerful thing. So that scene, the scene with, or really it's all the scenes because it you know they're they're cut up. But the scenes with with Palpatine, Vader, and Luke. When I I remember when I got into high school that that became the thing that I most appreciated about Star Wars, and I think that's when it really solidified for me that Jedi was my favorite film because I just loved that interplay. And I wanted to point out here how genius it is that you have a 37-year-old Ian McDermott under all of that makeup to play an ancient Chief Palpatine. Because it's so convenient. Like, when I read the fact that he was 37, I first heard this several years ago. I was like, you've got to be kidding. That That's a young guy that's under there? And, you know, the genius of that 
is that one, he pulls it off, and two, that you know, 20 years later, you can have him play a younger version of the character uh, for consistency's sake. But I would say, you know, we've talked about this before, that McDermott is maybe the only melodramatic, but it works. You know, on the, we talk about our sliding scale of acting. The only other person that I had on there is, is Lando being pulled in by the Sarlacc. But I've, again, it's kind of appropriate. I just like the whelp that he makes, that sound. That's always fun. But yeah, I mean, you're being pulled into, you know, the Sarlacc, and I would make that, sim- you know, a similar sound. Yeah. But I also, you know, speaking of just back to Luke again, he, I think that he's just supremely confident throughout the film. Uh, that's my, the, my main takeaway, and that I don't think Han Solo's ever been funnier. He's just so incredibly sarcastic. This line after line uh, in Jabba's palace, you know, good, I hate long waits. You're going to die here, you know, convenient. It's just like one after another. You know, he's, you know, carbon freezing apparently was really good for his sense of humor. I don't know, fly casual. <laughs> that's probably yeah. my favorite. <laughs> yeah, that's good too. <laughs> Told you it was going to work. Keep your uh, distance, but don't look like you're keeping your distance. Yeah. But there's a, I mean, there's a lot of huge, uh, Hugely important, just single lines of dialogue in this film that uh, you know, I take away. I think this is an incredibly quotable film. I love Vader's, and just from, you know, just one-offs here. You know, Vader saying the Emperor is not as forgiving as I am when we've, we've seen how forgiving Vader is. I had that too. Uh, you know, watching this in, in the light of Revenge of the Sith and hearing Luke say, don't underestimate my power is fascinating because of course these things rhyme and you know that's that's a scary thing to be saying you know and then he pretty much straight up murders you know countless gangsters and thugs yeah they're bad people but is that really the jedi way you know he's he's continually walking that line through this whole thing and uh the whole conversation with with kenobi later on revealing that leia is his sister is you know i thought that was a, just a great a great twist because, you know, I remember thinking, because I was old enough to remember the back and forth whether or not Vader is Luke's dad and that we were going to finally get an answer to that. And then we do. And like, okay, that's the big reveal. And then it's like, wait, wait, we've got something else for you. There's this other whole other thing. And I didn't remember the whole, there is another Skywalker thing that, that had flown over my head. But um, looking back now, it's like, I really should have been, what does that mean? Because I know that we're, you know, people who are my age or, or you know, teenagers would have looked at that and said, well, what is that going to mean? The one last thing I had for dialogue, and this was one that, again, in the light of the prequels, I thought took on new meaning. And that is where Vader says, give yourself to the dark side. It's the only way to save your friends. I'd always read that as a, as a taunt and not really put anything into it. Uh, but after seeing how Anakin turns because of wanting to save his wife, I thought, well, you know, he actually believes that. He's not... He's not trying to taunt Luke here. He's he's giving advice, uh, you know, based on on what he knows. So I always I find that interesting. Now I hear that and I go, "Yep, I can picture him giving himself, you know, over to Palpatine's allegiance uh, in order to try and save his wife." All right. So moving on to setting and design, uh, my favorite thing about this movie, setting wise, is that Endor is in the redwood forest of Northern California, which is not that far from where I grew up. And I've been to, it's near Crescent City where it was filmed. And I've been to Crescent City a number of times when I was younger. And so to be, it was the first time I've ever been, hey, the, this is a Star Wars location that I've been to. And, and it's, a, you know, it's beautiful. And like, that's just reminds me of home whenever I watch that. So, so that's fun. 
And uh, here's one for you. My favorite set decoration is Han Solo. <laughs> I just never recognize this. Thing. I'm like, Han Solo is wall art in this film, <laughs> uh, which is fun. Uh, the spider web design behind Sheev's throne, I thought was genius too. I mean, that's that's the way I see it. And when he's revealing his plan of, you know, I, I brought them in, I was the one that let them all know. And it is very much, you know, it's a trap. He, he, he laid all this thing, all this out for them. We didn't mention it's a trap as a line, but of course, that's, that's a famous one, of course. Uh, and something else that I noticed really, for some reason, I had never seen this before, but when Vader lands in the docking bay at the beginning, that there is a Thai bomber hanging up on a scaffold. And I'd never noticed that before. And I was like, well, that's consistent with what we see in, in The Force Awakens. Because we hadn't really seen, we don't really see TIE fighters other than in flight. Right? We don't see them land. We don't really see them hanging anywhere and docking or anything. But I was like, well, there's an example of that. So that's consistent. And I thought that was cool because I'd, I'd never seen it before. But it's clearly there uh, if you're paying attention. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, Endor as... Uh, a new location. Uh, it's it's just a beautiful area. I didn't realize it was the uh, Redwood Forest. Uh, I don't know if I've been to Crescent City, but I've definitely seen the Redwoods of California. And it's a truly beautiful area. And I think it works really well with the Ewoks. The Ewoks can be a bit controversial. And frankly, I, I really enjoy them. And I always have. And I kind of question myself again, rewatching it this time. You know, do they... Do they work? And I, I think they really do. And on a couple different levels. I think it fits with uh, the Ewoks fit with this idea of the rebels as this ragtag group of people who are doing whatever they can. I don't care that they're kind of teddy bears. Like, sure, whatever. I mean, Star Wars is weird. And I think the people, I shouldn't say, what I will say is I, I think that it's totally okay to love the weird part of Star Wars. I think it's it's fun that you have these characters who really are, I think most people would view as weak, which also speaks to the mindset and mentality of the Empire. They have no thoughts. They have nothing, you know, I, I doubt they, they even thought of the Ewoks, and yet they can fight back against them. And so I think on a, a thematic level, they also work really well. I will say, though, that... Um, the one part that I hate about Return of the Jedi is the second Death Star. And it's something that I just, I have grown to dislike in all films when you have sequels or movies that follow and it feels too much like a literal raising of the stakes. It's the same thing, but bigger. Like, it it just grinds my gears uh, because, you know, okay, you build the Death Star... Sure, you know, you build this weapon of mass destruction and it gets destroyed because it has a weak point and you're basically going to do the same exact thing. <laughs> like it didn't work the first time, but you're going to do it another time. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I just feel like it's it's too, it's too on the nose and it's too, it's just not creative for me. And I love those creative endings. Uh, like, Luke throwing away the lightsaber and choosing nonviolence. That is a beautiful end to the film and to the trilogy. Why, why does it have to be a second Death Star? You know? And, and to me, that... And this will be an issue when we watch Force Awakens. <laughs> a bigger issue. Yeah. Because they raise the stakes in a very literal way with that one as well. But... And, you know, I'm, I'm more willing to forgive it. 
uh, the second time, but the third is is too much. And it, I just wish there was something else that they thought of um, coming back to, you know, if you're going to use this location, you're going to use this, you know, prop. This is a really important part of the story, you know, but it's not ultimately the Death Star, the second Death Star that makes this film. It's Luke and Vader that make this film, you know, and it's Han and the Ewoks and Leia and their relationship and their struggle on Endor that make the film. And I, I really enjoy the space battle with Lando and all the ships. I think it's a really fun part of the movie to watch, but it's not what I love about the film. And I think part of that is it's just kind of the same as A New Hope. Yeah, I can agree with that to a point. I mean, I've mentioned that the the interplay between between Sheev, Vader, and Luke is my favorite part. And when it does do the intercutting at the end between the three three scenes, I'm waiting for the get back on the Death Star. I want to see those three guys because yeah. it's really it's the character beats, which is again similar to to Empire in some ways, right? Because Empire started with a big battle, and then you have the character beats with with Vader and Luke, and now it's it's all happening at the same time. Um, which I think speaks to the power of the editing. I think the editing's good enough where it it continually drives it and it doesn't lag at any point. Mine's just very much a, a personal, that's my favorite part. I want to see that part. I'm not bored. I'm just anticipating it. I also agree, though, that space battle, I, th- I still think that's the the best space battle I've ever seen in a film, period. And, you know, the the scene in, in the beginning of Revenge of the Sith is fantastic. And uh, there's other films as well, but I think that compared to, say, Rise of Skywalker, which again tries to you know, we talked about up the ante and raise the stakes and whatnot. It just doesn't work the same way that this one does. And I don't want to beat it in horse because we'll we'll talk about that film when we talk about that film. Uh, but you mentioned too having you know the chemistry uh, in this film. I wanted to talk about that that we finally get the big three back together, uh, and it's great when they are when they're on Endor. You know Han, Han says, "Hey, it's me," and it's like, "Yeah." They kind of roll their eyes, and it's like, "Yes, we we put the band back together." And I think that's the magic of the film too, uh, is getting to see these three characters with each other, uh, and they've grown. But like, they're like family to us because we've you know, had so much time to spend with them, and we missed that from the last one. As much as we love um, Empire, and that they had to separate them, it's that much better when they're reunited. Um, the only part I don't like about that is that they're never on the Falcon together that you don't quite, and you never get that now, which is, um, I think kind of a missed opportunity. It's interesting that they throw in Mon Mothma, who's the actual leader of the rebellion who we've never even heard mentioned. And, and there she is. Here's the, here's the one that's in charge. Um, Admiral Akbar, that's a fun addition. Uh, C-3PO as a God is kind of a fun beat. And yeah, you mentioned like Lando that you really do get the full redemption of Lando. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, and I noticed this time too that Yoda seems so much older than he did in the previous film in so many ways, which is, I was going to say that's great acting. And I guess it is, even though it's a puppet. And I don't know if it's a different, uh, a different model of the puppet or not. Um, but as old as Yoda was in the previous film, he's that much older. Uh, in the way that he acts in this film. So let's talk about uh, the galaxy. Did you have anything um, in regards to the Force that we haven't already talked about? You know, we've already kind of mentioned it, but just Luke being on the edge a little bit. I mean, that that was kind of, uh, as far as world building, um, I think we see Luke in a new light 
And ultimately, it doesn't change him. But I think there's that temptation there. Yeah, he kind of hits like the greatest hits of things that we've seen force ability wise. Like we see him do the force choke. Uh, he does the Jedi mind trick uh, as well. And then, you know, tapping into, we mentioned earlier, kind of tapping into the dark side, but then backing off uh, to face Vader. And then the only new thing we have really is is force lightning, which, you know, we've seen it in, in some of the earlier films now in the, in the prequels and whatnot. Um, but this was the first time that an audience saw that this was a, a, a thing, you know, in Star Wars. Um, so that's interesting. And, you know, a thing that always comes out with this, uh, with students, is why is Luke's face not changed, but, but Palpatine's does? Which I think is a fascinating question. Um, I don't really want to talk about the answer. I just think the question is interesting. So final thoughts, things that we haven't talked about yet. Just overall, I, I do quite like the film. You know, it's a pet peeve of mine when you have a literal raising of the stakes. But ultimately, I still think it's it's an exciting and fun film to watch that has a really, really good heart to it with Vader and Luke. And I think that right there automatically, for me, makes it one of the better Star Wars films just because it's so meaningful uh, with with Luke and that redemption between him and Vader. It's such a heartfelt moment that I can't help but love the film for that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I had two main things that I wanted to talk about. I guess, I guess three. Well, first, first one I said, this, this is the right way to end a trilogy. Yeah, shots fired to Rise of Skywalker. But <laughs> like, it just feels like it wraps up all the loose ends beautifully. It doesn't feel like, doesn't feel like fan service to me. And I know I've lived with it for so long that it's it's kind of hard to judge that, and there's recency bias and those things. Uh, but it just feels like the perfect way to cap off not only the original trilogy, which you know it was the uh, the final word on the saga for 16 years. It was like this is the end of Star Wars. Yeah. But it also works beautifully as the end of six movies. As a middle chapter, it's kind of like, well, you ended it. Why did you need to open it back up again? And I still don't feel like they did a satisfactory job in explaining why they needed to do that. It just felt kind of tacked on uh, to me. And that partly is because I just love this movie so much. So the last two things I wanted to talk about with this is is one that this time it kind of struck me that structurally this is almost like a Bond film in the sense that you have like a totally separate beginning. The whole Jabba sequence is so different than everything else. And it really has, it's all about Han Solo, right? It doesn't really have any galaxy spanning con it's not tied into the gal the galaxy conflict uh it's really just about him and you know even the opening crawl is kind of interesting it's like luke skywalker is going back to save his friend like we were talking about like the death star and the rebel alliance and all the imperials and all the stuff that's like it's gonna affect everyone this is like nope we're going back for one guy to take care of this and then we'll get back to the main story which i think is a really interesting thing and i love it i love that whole java sequence i think it's fantastic but it is kind of divorced from the last, the rest of the film. Not in a bad way, but in a way I think that's very different than any of the Star Wars movies, um, any of the other Star Wars movies that we have. And then my last point is just about uh, Vader's redemption and whether or not it's earned. I think that's a fascinating question. And if he's actually redeemed, I tend to think that the fact that he shows up as a force ghost is confirmation of that. And I was curious about what you thought about the fact that he's Hayden Christensen now at the end of Return of the Jedi. Uh, I'm totally fine with that. 
Um, and I, I think it's because I feel like Vader's redemption is totally earned. And for me, it kind of comes down to like storytelling and, you know, storytelling is something that I'm extremely fascinated by. Storytelling is, it's sort of like a lens where you are trying to examine the human condition. And so whatever story you are trying to tell, ultimately all good stories are about human condition. And so this is why people love stories. They get a connection from them. And ultimately what it comes down to is, you know, does it accurately reflect the human condition? And I think part of that is that change is really difficult. It's why you can't stop smoking cigarettes just because you know that they're unhealthy for you or eating junk food just because you know it's unhealthy for you. Humans struggle and they fight against change even when they know it's good for them. And that's part of the reason why I feel like you can't have change that happens instantly. And this actually, I feel like is a really good example of slow dramatic change throughout a film where you have one character, Luke, who is constantly needling and working on Vader and trying to find his weak points throughout the film and coming at him and trying to expose Anakin, who is trapped within the suit of Vader. And, and ultimately, right at the end, it comes down to the lie that Anakin believes, but isn't true, which is that the only way to save those you love is through violence and through the dark side, right? Because that's the lie that Sidious spins him in the prequel trilogy. And it's not true, but he believes it. Luke proves that there is another way through his action. And, and that right there, the action demonstrating how the lie is false to Vader is a perfect example of how you, you show, show someone uh, that they need to change. And Vader does that right at the end. And so him coming back as Hayden Christensen, I think is, is totally fine. It's awesome because it's a nod to the fact that uh, the character work done by Luke and Vader and the back and forth between them uh, feels earned. And so it makes sense that Hayden Christensen is there as the Force Ghost rather than Vader, essentially. Yeah, I've heard I've heard some people have, have issues with that. Uh, I I tend to think that it makes sense on a number of levels. I think that Anakin Skywalker, and we've seen this in some of the, the supplemental material, that he was very famous, and so Luke would recognize Anakin and in that form. You know, that's not like, hey, who's that guy? That's one of the big arguments. Well, he wouldn't even know who he is. I'm like, yeah, I think he would. I think that's the thing. More so, I think he's, you know, he's looking at force ghosts. He's going to be able to figure it out, like who the, who the third person is, right? I tend to think that it's also validated by the fact that the last time Anakin was Anakin was that's what he looked like. Well, and there's and also that, a force connection, too. Sure. And, and I, I, I think that I've always kind of subscribed to the theory that it's like a residual self-image, like sort of along the lines of like the Matrix, that when you appear as a force ghost, you are your idealized version of yourself. And so Anakin would see himself that way. Yeah. He wouldn't see himself as Sebastian Shaw from, you know, the original cut, which I don't have a problem. I never have a problem with that either. I mean, that's clearly that's our only reference for Anakin without a mask on. Right. So it would be bizarre to have another actor play that, having not seen uh, 
you know, Anakin in another form. But I will say that, you know, I think that's also a generational thing. Those of us that grew up on, you know, the original cut, uh, the theatrical cut, look at that and go, okay, that's a change. And like you had mentioned, you know, eloquently, change is hard. Yeah. And uh, for kids that have not seen it any other way, who've seen the prequels first, and especially now if they've seen Clone Wars, they're going to go, well, it should be that guy because that's Anakin Skywalker. There is no, uh, you know, except no substitutes, that's Anakin Skywalker. So... Uh, I think it's it's a it's a great change. I don't know. I don't like all the changes, but I loved that one. So on that note, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook, or email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com. Let us know if we missed anything. And if you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group. It's a safe place to share your thoughts and discuss all things related to movies. <laughs>